the historic tax credit was created as a way to provide that gap financing to really in, encourage, incentivize people to do the right thing by historic buildings, to spend a little more money, a little more effort to make sure that these pieces of our shared history are, are preserved. You know, because every building tells a story. It tells a story about the people who live there. It tells a story about the community in which it exists. And if we don't take care to protect those buildings, to preserve them, um, bits and pieces of that story will will start to fade away and will erode and and pretty soon it won't be left for future generations. Welcome to the Placemaking Podcast. Podcast. The show geared at helping real estate developers learn and understand important aspects of the development process while improving communities one at a time. Each week, we'll discuss major facets of the real estate development process with industry professionals. Now, here's your host, Matthew Lowe's. Hello, and welcome to episode number 35 of the Placemaking Podcast. I am beyond thrilled to share this next conversation with all of you today. Elizabeth Rosen is the principal and CEO of Rosen Preservation, located in Kansas City. Elizabeth came into the field of historic preservation through the study of archaeology, earning her undergraduate degree from Northwestern University in anthropology and geography. She became intrigued by the buildings that emerged from the confluence of people and place. This interest spurred her to pursue a Master's of Science in Historic Preservation at the University of Vermont. Since graduating in 1990, Elizabeth has held positions in both the public and private sectors that have involved her in historic preservation projects throughout the United States. In addition to the survey and designation of numerous historic resources, she has consulted on over a hundred tax credit projects representing over one billion of National Park Service approved rehabilitation. In this episode, we discuss the process of obtaining historic tax credits the most challenging aspects of obtaining these credits, and the various benefits there are to obtaining these types of tax credits for redevelopment. There's tons of great information in this episode, and I greatly appreciated Elizabeth for taking the time out of her busy schedule to discuss this topic of historic tax credits with me. So as always, if you've enjoyed the show, I'd ask that you please subscribe to the show and share with your friends in the industry. There'll be more exciting conversations on the shows to come. So without further ado, let's start the show. Hey, welcome to the show, Elizabeth. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm honored to have you on here. You know so much about the topic today, and I am excited to have you on here to speak a little bit more about it. So first off, I gave a little introduction before the show. But uh, I would like to hear, in your own words, a little bit about Elizabeth Rosen yourself and uh, transitioned how you transitioned into Rosen Preservation. Yeah, sure. So um, one of the things that I've always loved about the field of historic preservation is that it's very holistic. It's it's very broad. There are people who are attracted to it from just this incredible array of backgrounds. And then there are almost as many ways to find your professional footing um, once you have the preservation skills and the preservation background. And, and 
Um, so I came to preservation originally with a background in archaeology and realized pretty early on in my career that um, I needed um, additional um, education. I probably needed to go to graduate school and I really wasn't that interested in um, things that were buried in the dirt and wouldn't answer my questions for me and um, discovered uh, historic preservation and buildings, historic buildings as, as sort of the complement to what I'd been looking at previously. Um, so I uh, went to graduate school and got a, a master's in historic preservation. Um, learned how, learned all of the skills that I needed to do the job that I do now and um, spent a few years in uh, working for a large private consulting firm on the East Coast um, and moved to Kansas City in the mid-90s to work for the city planning department um, with their Landmarks Commission. When Missouri started their state historic tax credit in 1998, that was the ideal time for me to start a venture of my own and uh, go into consulting and take the knowledge that I had um, gained and the skills that I had learned and apply that to um, new, new clients and new challenges. Wow. So I, I was in a, a partnership for seven and a half years before founding Rosen Preservation in 2006. Wow. The work that we do is primarily focused on historic tax credit consulting, helping our clients access financial incentives to um, make the redevelopment of historic buildings feasible. That's awesome. So I'm just curious, the archaeology degree, <laughs> what, uh, what spurred that, that uh, I guess, pursuit when you were growing Why, up? I, um, I, when I was about seven, my family moved overseas for a couple years, and I just had a lot of exposure to um, archaeology, um, it, northern European prehistory, things like that, you know, the Vikings and the peat bog people and, and all of that. And it, it was just something I got a lot of exposure to and something I was, was always interested in, um, even moving back to the States. Um, throughout high school, I was uh, volunteering at um, uh, archaeological digs, prehistoric Native American um, sites, and and just just something I loved. Okay, is that what you wanted to do? You were thinking that's when... what I wanted to do from the time I was eight. Okay, so well, this was a good transition then. It's, it was a very good transition. The hard thing with archaeology is that you ask lots of questions and then you answer them with more questions because <laughs> nothing is ever 100% certain. Right. Um, with buildings, at least you can ask questions and get answers that you most of the time are, are fairly certain about what, you know, that your answer is, is correct. That's a good point. There's a little more certainty. <laughs> much more certainty. certainty. Much more satisfying. That's right. Brick and mortar. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's awesome. So, so can you kind of give us an idea? You, you mentioned it already, but the redevelopment, you're making it feasible when you're, when you're applying for these tax credits. So can you kind of give us a, a perspective of why these historic tax credits are, are important and, and what benefits? Sure. Sure. So, when you're rehabbing a historic building, as a lot of people know, um, 
it it's a expensive proposition. Um, you often run into things that you didn't expect. Um, there, if you are going to really do it right, there is more craftsmanship involved. Um, there may be materials that are more expensive than if you were just renovating a building without paying attention to its history. And so the historic tax credit was created as a way to provide that gap financing to really in encourage, incentivize people to do the right thing by historic buildings, to spend a little more money, a little more effort to make sure that these pieces of our shared history are, are preserved. You know, because every building tells a story. It tells a story about the people who live there. It tells a story about the community in which it exists. And if we don't take care to protect those buildings, to preserve them, um, bits and pieces of that story will will start to fade away and will erode and and pretty soon it won't be left for future generations. So so that's what the credit was about. Um, the federal historic tax credit was started in 1976 and the program became permanent in um, now I'm blanking. Um, it was it was during the Reagan years, um, and it was part. It was '86. It was the tax reform in '86, um, and um, it was was made a permanent part of the tax code at that point. And um, uh, it's been widely used ever since um, in all of the states and um, uh, territories, U.S. territories, and and since. The, since then, since the early 90s, really, we've seen more and more states that adopt a parallel state historic tax credit. Um, so an additional percentage of incentive that is um, available to, you know, to just sweeten the pot, to sweeten the deal, to provide a little more encouragement. Um, we in Missouri are really fortunate because our credit that was started in 1998 was what I'll call one of the first modern credits where it's very functional. Um, it uh, works well with both the development process and the financing process um, and has really encouraged um, both property owners and developers working in Missouri, as well as other states to um, take advantage of the program. Hmm. And, and so we, we've talked about kind of a broad overview. So what does that, what does that look like financing wise? Um, it's obviously a, a tax credit, right. which is a dollar for dollar credit on, on the actual cost. So Basically, you would say you spent X number, sure, yeah, X number of dollars uh, on this improvement, and then you would get a credit up to a certain amount. Uh, is that a flat credit? Is there any variance in in the, the amount of credit that's given, or or how's that work? So the, the federal credit is a flat 20%, and that's calculated as a percentage of your qualified expenses. Um, the state credits typically vary from 20 to 25%. Most of them are. Some of them are a little bit uh, less than that. 
Um, and the state credits, sometimes there's a cap on the amount of credit a, a project can get. Like in Ohio, the maximum a project can receive is $5 million. Um, in some other states, the cap may be $500,000. Wow. So there's a lot of variance there. Um, but say you spend a million dollars in qualified costs, you know, you'll get a $200,000 federal tax credit. And in, in Missouri, with a 25% credit, you would get a $250,000 state credit. So $450,000 that can either be used by the developer or it can be monetized by um, uh, the state credits are often transferable. In Missouri, it's certificated, super easy for that transfer. The federal credit, you can bring investors into your project um, who, who are interested in, in using that credit. That's um, huge. It is huge. It, it is a big deal. Um, and, and right now, we're hopeful that there may be some um, COVID relief leg legislation in Washington that will provide a short-term emergency bump to the federal cr tax credit, um, boosting it from 20% to 30% um, wow. as a way to just keep projects moving and, and people employed and um, supplies moving through the supply chain. That's huge. That is, so you're talking, I mean, if, if a state participates in, in the tax credits at the state level, I mean, you're 40 to 50% yeah. of your, your costs you could, and you can monetize those, like you're mm -hmm. saying, wow. Yeah, there's a really strong, um, community of in investors and buyers for those credits. You know, the, the program has been around and active for long enough that um, there are folks who understand how it works and, you know, know, want to take advantage of the credits. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it ha certainly helps deals come together uh, much faster. Right. And is it possible to structure deals with public and private partnerships and still obtain uh, historic tax credits? Or is that? <laughs> there is, you know, the lawyers can figure out how to do just about anything. Sure. Um, there are ways to do that, but it becomes complicated. Um, uh, historic, uh, to qualify for the historic tax credits, you have to have a for-profit owner. Um, you know, a tax paying entity needs to be the owner. Um, so when you have a public entity of some type that's involved, it requires some legal gymnastics. We, we, we see some master tenant deal structures where um, the, the entity that's claiming the tax credits is actually the tenant in the, in the property mm -hmm. um, that may be owned by a public entity. Wow. For instance, or the the public entity's investment comes through some other um, channel or some other mechanism. Sure. But but we have seen um, we worked on a project in um, the town of Hiawatha, Kansas, which is a small town in northeastern Kansas. Um, a few years ago, they had a building on their downtown that was. Um, it was an old bank with a lodge hall on the second floor, and uh, it became the new city hall. So oh. a private entity redeveloped, rehabbed the building, and then it was occupied by the city um, for their offices. They became the, the 
um, rent paying tenant hmm. that made the that fit the requirements of the program. Wow. Um, or for instance, um, in, in Kansas City, downtown Kansas City, um, a private developer rehabbed, um, again, it was an old bank building, um, to be the, the main branch of the public library. So the public library occupies this beautiful restored building um, as the tenant to a private entity, wow. or as the, the, the tenant paying rent to a private entity. Right. So there's a way around. There's <laughs> always a way work. around. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's why the lawyers make the big bucks. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's not a job I want to do either. So. <laughs> yeah. And I say that with great uh, respect and admiration. <laughs> right. Right. Well, went in a little deeper, but kind of come back a little bit to the actual process for just a, a typical, like you're saying, for-profit developer <laughs> comes in. What does that look like once? Once somebody has reached out to you to say, hey, we, we're looking to tackle this uh, redevelopment project. Uh, we think it's a historic building. We don't know for sure. What, is that, what does that look like? Well, we field a lot of, of questions from our clients like, hey, I'm looking at this building. What do you think? Mm -hmm. And so we're always happy to do that. Shoot me an address and we'll spend 30 45 minutes, an hour, you know, just looking up and seeing what we can find online to, mm -hmm. to, to give some feedback about, you know, is it going to be eligible for the historic tax credits or not? The, the first requirement is that the building is either listed on the National Register of Historic Places or that it's eligible for listing on the National Register. So that listing can happen um, concurrent with the, the rehab and the construction process. It just happened. It's a process that um, predates the historic tax credits. It's its own thing, and it's going to take six to twelve months. Mm. So the the first part of the historic tax credit application is to certify that yes, indeed, the building is eligible for the credits. Uh, and this is where you can submit um, documentation if it's not already on the national register to show the reviewers that yes, it it will indeed qualify. So the next part of the application is your scope of work, where you lay out um, photos of all the existing conditions. This is a really detailed set of photos, all the spaces, exterior, interior, um, the public spaces, as well as, you know, the basement and the attic and really? everything that's going on and, and describing what, what each of those spaces um, looks like what its character is, what's historic about it or not. Um, and then in, in tandem with that, what work is proposed. So we really like to engage with our clients very early in their process. Um, when they're first starting to talk about design, this is always easier when you're working with a team of people who've been through through it once before. Yeah. Um, you know, we work with a lot of different architects and it's not rocket science, but if you've been through the, the historic tax credit process once before, you understand some of the, the rules and the guidelines a little mm -hmm. more. Um, it can seem very arcane if you don't understand what's driving the process. But that's a lot of our responsibility is to help everybody interpret um, the the owner's program for the building, what they are trying to achieve, 
their vision? Um, how do you meet all of the, the code requirements, the city requirements for the redevelopment and the, the new use, and also satisfy all of the program requirements for the historic tax credits themselves? So our job is to make sure all of those things can come together. That's got to be a difficult job. <laughs> that, uh, Sometimes it's more difficult than others. <laughs> yeah. I but mean, yeah, it's tricky. Yeah. Just just thinking about it, you know, sometimes people will will make their own updates to certain buildings um, without maybe having professionals on board beforehand, but to try to decipher, uh, you guys have to decipher what's what's original, what's not, what's, you know, what was the intent of certain things. That's got to be pretty tough sometimes, I would imagine. It, it is tough. And the other thing that complicates the, the whole discussion is that every building will have a different set of parameters. So it, it may have a different function historically um, or different types of finishes. We, we often work with um, folks where their experience in the past has always been rehabbing like a, a warehouse building, right? And that's pretty straightforward. You've got brick walls, you've got either concrete or heavy timber structure and, you know, not a lot else going on. And then they decide they're going to take a, like maybe a historic hotel or historic office building and rehab that. And it's, it feels like a different set of rules. Um, but it's really the same rules. You just have to apply them in a different way with a different understanding of what your historic conditions are. Interesting. There's a lot of research, it sounds like, that, that goes into this. There's a lot of research. Um, you know, the more you understand about the historic building and how it evolved, what its original design was, the easier it can be. Um, sometimes having a building that has not changed much is harder than having a building that has been changed hmm. because once those historic elements are missing you you may have a little more leeway in how you put things back together oh that's a good point so so for instance windows windows are always the the most complicated and the most expensive part of <laughs> a historic tax credit project and you, you just have to accept that. Um, yeah. But the rules for how you approach windows are pretty well spelled out. After, you know, 30 plus years, we, we know what's going to be expected um, with windows. If you have the original wood windows in your, uh, you know, high-rise office building, you're going to be required to, you know, keep those windows or possibly if you're allowed to replace them, replace them with something that is a very exact match for the windows that you see in those openings now. Wow. If the windows were previously replaced, you're going to have more flexibility. Um, it can be a window that is what we call period appropriate. So it has the general dimensions and configuration and profiles that we would expect to see in a historic window of that vintage, but we're not matching anything. There's nothing left to match exactly. Right. And I assume that's what a lot of it comes down to is period appropriate. A lot of it is about period appropriate yeah. and understanding what is historically significant and what isn't, what's character defining and what isn't. Um, you know, we look at the 
the exterior is more important than the interior. On the exterior, the, the front is more important than the back or the street facing sides um, are more important than the rear. When you go inside, those public lobbies, um, public spaces, corridors are going to be more important than what happened in the, the private spaces. So there's a, a definite hierarchy in how you look at things. Um, and and you need that historical knowledge to to understand how to think about the buildings. Oh, those are that's a great point. So this is you're on step two right now. You're you're defining the space. You're starting to at this point go ahead and tell them, hey, this is what I intend to do at this point. Correct. Okay. Um, and when you get uh, when your part two application is approved, that's the the reviewers saying. Yes, if you build your project the way you have told us, um, you will get your historic tax credits at the end of construction. Mm -hmm. um, so it's a really, that is a really critical juncture for most projects. A lot of times if you have an investor, um, that's when they will be, be paying in. Um, if you or you know somebody who's buying your credits, they want to see that approved part too. That that gives them the assurance that their investment is going to be solid. Mm -hmm. down the road, if something changes, we always have the opportunity to amend the application, to to say, oh, we we learned something new about the building, or our program changed slightly. Or we, you know, we couldn't get the product that we were intending to use, and we're using a, a different product instead. Mm -hmm. we, we've been seeing that a lot this year, with um, particularly with hotel projects that are converting to multifamily instead. That's interesting. I, I want to hear about that a little bit more here. In the <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that one. But, okay. So I, that's part of my question is uh, that second part is that iterative do they they review bring provide comments you is it it's a back and forth process that yeah you you hope it's not a back and forth process <laughs> what sure. you want is just a clean approval no questions no comments right, right. that that doesn't happen too often right. um if there are concerns by the reviewers we we do have some back and forth and we do have an opportunity for for conversations to revise plans to to tweak things um Sometimes it's a, a significant detail, like um, if it's a rehab of a historic school, for instance, they um, a rehab of a school for housing, and the developer is proposing to put new residential units in the historic auditorium. They may come back and say, you know what, we need to see some of the auditorium, the volume of space left intact. So we need you to redesign that space or um it could be like lately there has been a lot of concern about um luxury vinyl plank lvp flooring product um especially when it's designed the lvp that's made to look like wood with a wood type finish because the these planks are um rectangles they're kind of squat rectangles rather than the long thin, thin boards that you would see in a historic wood floor. Um, we've gotten a lot of pushback on those. So trying to figure out what what's the appropriate 
um, flooring material that still meets the project budget and accomplishes the, the look that the reviewers want to see. Um, that, that's the type of thing that we negotiate a lot. Okay. Okay. So you hope it's not long. What's, I guess, what's a normal expected time period for that process to take? It is 60 to 90 days okay. is, is typical. Um, the review happens in two different agencies. So first it goes to your state preservation office. You know, in every state, there is a, a state preservation office and they'll give the first pass with the idea being they're sort of the more local entity mm-hmm. and have a, um, a better understanding of what's appropriate in that state. Um, and after that, it goes to the National Park Service. So each agency has thir- a 30-day review clock. Okay. Um, and then there's, you know, a little time for transit back and forth or questions that come up. Sure. Sure. Okay. So you get your approval the second. You get what, your what's, approval. What's the technical term? Second? Uh, uh, part two. Phase? Part two? Okay. Part two. So you get your approval at part two, and then you're down to part three, right? Right. So after part two, you you go off and you build, right? right? You build and you follow the plans that you laid out in your part two. Um, There are no surprises, no changes um, in your ideal world. Yeah. Um, And when construction is done, um, we come back um, and and photo document the building again. So it's... um, pretty much that we try and duplicate all of the views that we took in uh, before construction mm-hmm. to show that the building was indeed rehabbed exactly as was proposed. And that those photos are submitted with some financial information about the project. Um, and then when that application is approved is when the tax credits are um, issued. So-, so one thing that's really nice about this program um, and different from a lot of other programs is that they, you know, um, this public funding, this public funds are not being spent up front. They require you this substantial documentation of, of the building and of the work that was completed that to make sure that the applicant met the intent of the program before they're getting the money. Mm-hmm. Um, we we get a we hear a lot of concerns, um, especially at the the state level, about how this public money is being spent. Um, but it's one of the most secure programs out there because there are so many back checks and so much work. You know, all of the work is completed. All of the pro- private investment is made before one penny of public incentive is awarded. Yeah, no, that that makes a whole lot of sense. Yeah. Um, Just curious, do they ever audit? Do they send? I have never seen a project get a federal audit. Um, Most of the state programs these days require a cost certification before they'll issue the state credits. So you're you're doing that audit of costs, um, providing that documentation um, prepared by a CPA, but before you'll get your state credits. Okay. Okay. But they never come out and I've visit. I've never seen a, <laughs> I, you know, sometimes your, your state preservation office, depending which state you're working in, they will come out and walk the project at the end. Um, a lot of the CPAs do that too, before they prepare the, the cost cert. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you've got 
plenty of documentation over the right. life of the project. But. And, and we've got 150, 200, 300 photos before and after to compare. Right. So. Right. So what, I mean, we've already, I feel like we've already answered this question, but what's the most difficult part of this whole process is the, the most difficult part of the process is really um, getting through the design and the the challenges of of um, making the getting the program the the developers program um, and vision to mesh with the the design guidelines for the historic tax credits mm -hmm. um, and sometimes it's like just explaining the logic to the developer of why they can or can't do something in a certain way. Um, and, and conversely, helping the reviewers understand why something needs to be done in a certain way. You know, we've, we've designed it this way because there were no other options. Um, mm -hmm. and yeah. Making those two, get, getting those two sides to, to communicate and to agree. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's it's a lot of money to be spending for most of these developers, even though there is a credit, you know, and, and their investors, but even though there is a credit involved, I mean, you still want to be able to make the project make sense. Yeah, but it, it has to cash flow. I mean, right. if, if this rehab doesn't cash flow, nobody's going to do the, the project, right. um, which is, is interesting. We look now at... Um, you know, with the opportunity zones, yeah. now you, you're starting to see a few projects, historic tax credit projects happen in opportunity zones. And of course, there will be, you know, across the country, there will be a couple big fancy ones that, that call everybody's attention. But it's finding the right use, the right project to happen in that opportunity zone um, and a project that's going to make sense. Um, for the developer that that it's you know it's going to pencil out and if it doesn't pencil out they're not going to do the project there or anywhere um mm -hmm. but bottom line that's that's got to happen as well right I'm, I'm interested in these hotel renovations because that's something you kind of hear about here and there is is that a, a recent occurrence is that so up until 2019, I'd say um, hotel conversions were one of our uh, one of the top types of projects that we worked on. It seemed mm -hmm. like everybody was doing hotels, and whether it was uh, historic hotels that were being refurbished mm -hmm. or buildings that were being converted into hotels, we were seeing a lot of that type of work all all over. Um, once COVID happened earlier this year, obviously the hospitality industry really got hit hard. And we saw several of our clients put the brakes on their their hotel projects. We've seen a few others say, you know what, I'm just going to move a little slower. And by the time we're through construction, the industry will have opened Rebound. up again. You yeah. know, there will be a vaccine and people will be traveling again. Sure. Um, in the meantime, though, we have seen several where the developer said, you know what, I, I own this building, I'm not going to sit on it for who knows how long. Um, so what, what's the next use I can come up with? And it's typically multifamily housing. It's, yeah. you know, a very compatible um, 
used to hotels. You combine a couple hotel rooms and voila, you have an apartment. Mm-hmm. You know, you still need a few amenity spaces and um, it it converts very nicely. Okay. So it, it's been fairly successful with the ones that you've seen so far? Or? They're, they're still in construction, but it, okay. it's coming along. We, we did have one um, that actually just opened up uh, this this fall where it had been apartments and they converted it to hotel. Mm. So, and, you know, this was a project that had started a couple years ago, you know, right. bef- way before COVID. So um, it was right. interesting to see that one go that direction. Yeah. So I guess what's the most difficult part for them? Uh, it sounds like finding amenity space might be the most difficult part of that conversion process. Is that um, you know, this one was a really straightforward project. Really? It was, um, they, they did not, this building in particular had some really beautiful public spaces that were easily adapted for the new hotel. Mm-hmm. So it, it was very smooth. It's something that kind of interested to see how that, you know, how this whole thing kind of pans out with the, the, the different conversions that are, are probably going to be happening. And, and then I, I feel like people really enjoy living in those spaces as well, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you see quite often. But, you know, having those real, not antique, but just the, the finishes. Vintage. The, <laughs> vintage, yes. Vintage is in, right? And you know, you see that not just in big cities, but you're seeing that in in pretty small towns now as well. People are fixing up buildings on their main street and their courthouse square and putting small businesses on the first floor and then the second floor becomes apartments. And the same way that in the city, having people live downtown helps create a vital place, it does the same thing in the small town too. And, and people are really enjoying living in these down, downtown spaces in the, in the small towns. In the small towns, yeah. So I want to touch on a couple of your, your larger projects that you have marquee projects on your, uh, sure. on your website. It's the Empire State Building on your website. The Empire State Building is on my a, website. There's got to be a story. So Yeah. So, again, because um, Missouri has seen so many more historic tax credit projects than much of the rest of the country, um, we were brought in as a consultant when the Empire State Building was going through its rehab. Um, this is about 10 years ago now. Mm-hmm. And um, they had the owners had gotten some advice that suggested they weren't eligible for the tax credits, which wasn't correct. And it was an accountant who actually connected them with some consultants in Missouri who had wow. a, a better sense of what was going on. Now, what was really interesting about that project, and we got like a, the an approved part two for it. So their scope of work had been approved, even though it was, um, it was kind of a forensic application. A lot of work had already been done at that point, mm-hmm. um, which was a challenge to, to reconstruct everything. Um, they, the owners, um, ch- they changed the ownership structure. They, they issued that IPO 
and um, they brought on shareholders and that change in ownership made it um, or disqualified them from using the historic tax credit. Um, And uh, so they were never able to, to claim it. So that, that was a little disappointing, but, but yeah, we, we did get an approved part two for the empire state building. Wow. That's cool. I bet that was uh, you. It was a thrill. A few times. Oh yeah. Yeah. I got to go up on the um, dirigible dock up on the, um, the, the base of the tower. So when you go as a visitor, um, you, you, the first level of observation deck is like the 86th floor. Mm-hmm. And then you can pay a little more money and go up to, I think it's the 105th floor. And from the 105th floor, there's like a ship's ladder behind a door, like a locked door. There's a sh- ship's ladder you climb up and that takes you to what was supposed to be the dirigible dock. Um, it is really high. <laughs> I was going to say, and, Wow. Yeah, it was. Heights, are you? <laughs> I, I am, as a matter of fact. And they had um, the part of the reason I was up there is they were doing some work to the railings because um, over the years there were some pipes that crossed the the walkway, and they had put plywood decking down over it to you know so nobody would trip. Sure. But then the, that made the railings lower. Oh no. <laughs> And I'm out there with the building manager or the, yeah, the building manager. And he's like uh, telling me about the time he was out there and the door blew shut and he didn't have his key and he got locked out. I'm like, we are going down. Yeah. yeah, right now. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. That's a story. Jeez. Yeah. That's definitely a career highlight. Yeah. That's awesome. Do you have any other highlights that you want to share right now of of projects that, yeah, you know, there's so many. Um, yeah. We worked with a developer who was uh, rehabbing uh, Kemper Arena in Kansas City. So this is a 1970, um, 72, 74 sports arena. Mm-hmm. And um, we were writing the National Register nomination for him. And it it ended up being a three-year process. Um, wow. Uh, you know, it was 13 drafts. It, it was just incredible. Every time we thought we had the the angle, the hook for the historic significance, it, it would change. We would get some pushback somewhere or another and, and we'd have to go down another path. Um, so wow. finally getting that building lasted, listed on the National Register was, was definitely a career highlight. Um, <laughs> A lot of work we, went into that one. Yeah, we, we've worked on some just great buildings over the years and of all types and all sizes. And, it you know, it's hard to pick. There, there are some where, like, the transformation has just been so utterly complete. Um, we worked on the Tulsa Club in um, Tulsa, mm-hmm. Oklahoma, which is now a hotel. And that was probably one of the most vandalized buildings I have ever been in. Um oh, no. It had um, uh, just graffiti everywhere, and the ballroom on the top floor had had at least one, if not more, fires. And it is now just a stunningly restored property, and you know, beautiful hotel, and and just so satisfying to go in and and see how that turned out. Definitely, I bet that's fun to go back it and is. take pictures afterwards. It's always great to go back and do the afters. Um, 
and and there are even some smaller buildings. Um, we worked on one in um, the St. Louis suburbs this past year. Um, it was an old car dealership and service building um, in the town of Webster Grove that was rehabbed for a restaurant. And, you know, again, not great timing for a restaurant, but, oh, the space is so beautiful. And um, once they come through COVID, they'll be, they'll be uh, hopping. Yeah. 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 Hopefully, hopefully it passes soon. So there's got to be so much that goes into preparing and, and, and looking at these structures and, and being the the go-to professional. I mean, you guys got selected for work on the empire state building i mean that takes a it takes yeah. a lot so how do you how do you stay on top of your game how do you continue to learn oh we just i try and keep my ear to the ground so part of it is um networking with my colleagues um and we pay attention to what's happening in in multiple realms so there's the preservation realm you know how how are people thinking about historic tax credits what are how are the rules changing are things shifting or not um, what do we need to be aware of on that side of the game but then also um, keeping our network strong with the the developers and the investors the funders the people who are are doing the projects and making things happen and what are their critical needs and how can we best address them mm-hmm. so it, it's um, it's been hard this year because networking opportunities have been fewer and farther between. Um, you know, but at the same time, with so many conferences online, um, it's easier and certainly more affordable to attend more of them, right? Because sure. um, you don't have to travel. Um, right. And you just need to to tune in, put on your your earphones, and and pull up your Zoom screen, and and you're good to go. Definitely. Definitely. So just uh, just continuing to reach out to others in the industry and and uh, even outside of, you know, your industry. Yeah. To, yeah. To... We I um, I uh, participate with the Historic Tax Credit Coalition, which is a, a national u- uh, industry user group and also advocacy group. Mm-hmm. So that's a great way to hear what's going on, both politically um but also within the community. And, and so that includes uh, developers, attorneys, accountants, investors, um, consultants like ourselves, and um, just have a, a big, be part of that bigger national conversation. So how, how can the listeners here find out a little bit more about Rosen Preservation? Uh, I said you have a beautiful website. Please visit my website. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, we, we try and stay, uh, we try and keep that up to date. So rosenpreservation.com, R-O-S-I-N. Um, we also are pretty active on social media. Um, we try and keep, uh, share a lot of the work that we're doing both on on Facebook and Instagram and, and also to a certain degree on LinkedIn. Um, sharing industry news as well, you know, things that we're learning about um, that we think others would find worthwhile and important as well. Perfect. 
did I see, see you have a newsletter? Is that right? We do have a newsletter that you can yes. sign up for through our website. Um, I, I will say that I've been a little lax in getting that out this year, but I uh, <laughs> it's on my list of things for 2021 to get uh, get back in the groove on. All right. So they can they can tune in there and expect absolutely in the near future. Right. <laughs> all right. Well, I really appreciate all your time today. My pleasure, Matt. Thanks for the invitation. It's been fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you.